0: All right, Ecclesiastes 4, we'll be in Ecclesiastes chapter 4 this morning, and if you're using one of the Bibles we provided for you, that'll be on page 555 of the Bibles that we provided there uh, in the rows. So, you know that we live in a culture that possesses the ability to communicate unlike any other in world history. I mean, just think about all the different ways that you communicate. You probably have maybe a phone at your house even if that's simply your cell phone. Your cell phone, you can make calls, you can shoot text messages, you can that, that brings us into a whole where um, we can you know, direct message people on Twitter, we can post you know, status posts, we can send messages there, you have IM, DM, you, know, you name it, Skype people, video messaging, Google chatting, you know, it's just kind of the, the possibilities are endless, right? And so while our, our, our ability to communicate may be, you know, described as easy and, and efficient and, and rapid, perhaps we would tack on another adjective there that would be true as well, and that might be superficial. I mean, th- think about it. You may be, you know, kind of pushing toward, you know, the, the number of followers on Twitter, you know, like Gaga and, and Bieber, you know, up to, up to close to 20 million, they... they, they had the list if you didn't know that. Uh, and, you know, you may have thousands of friends on Facebook, but but, but but what does that really mean? What does it mean? We're connected, ultra connected these days, but, but what is the depth of those connections? There's a scholar at Harvard, his name is Robert Putnam. He's a pro- Uh, professor of public policy there, and about a decade ago, he wrote a book called Bowling Alone. The subtitle is The Collapse and Revival of American Community, and in this book, he warns that our stock of social capital, the very fabric of our connections with each other, has plummeted, impoverishing both our lives and our communities. And so, so what he's saying there, when you think about social capital, you're thinking about the value that our relationships add to our lives and then the benefit that flows from those number of relationships that we enjoy here. And what he's saying is, is that, hey, you know, you may be connected in a lot of different ways, but, 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 but how much social capital do you really experience when your life, in many ways, may be more disconnected from others than it is connected? And so he's, he's done some extensive research, and this is what he found in America over the past 25 years. He, he says this, uh, attendance at club meetings over the past 25 years has dropped, ready for this, 58% in our country. Family dinners dropped 43%. People are having friends over 35% less of the time. Church attendance is down 20%, and Check this out. While the amount of those who bowl has increased 10%, those involved in bowling leagues is down 40%. Hence the title of his book. And so think about this picture, people bowling alone by themselves, just kind of going through life. It's a symbol, a metaphor, a picture of what happens in our individual lives. And so let me provide some biblical context for us. You have in Genesis one, a God who makes everything in the world. He calls everything good and he makes us in his his image. So what does that have to do with community and, and social capital? Well, God is a relational God. God is the triune God. He exists eternally as one God in three persons. The father is God, the son is God, the spirit is God. And they relate within themselves perfectly sharing the same essence and nature and purpose and mission and so God as a relational God and we are those who are made in his image we have a capacity for relationality to relate to one another it's in us that's how he's made us and this is where the preacher's going in in Ecclesiastes chapter 4 We've heard already that this preacher is after all different kinds of pursuits in life, and he is a wise teacher. Remember, he's making these observations of life that he sees under the sun. And he is going to warn us of some enemies of community on the one hand, but then he's going to encourage us toward the blessings of community on the other hand. And here's kind of the overarching encouragement for us this morning, is for us to increase our social capital, but do so by living in community with others. And this is where he's going in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. And so the first first encouragement for us this morning is to reject enemies of biblical community. We're going to see this in the first eight verses and then in the last four here in this chapter. The first enemy that we find in chapter 4 is the enemy of oppression. Check out verse 1 with me. What does he say? He says this, Again I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun and behold the tears of the oppressed and they had no one to comfort them on the side of their oppressors there was power and there was no one to comfort them and so think about the preacher remember he says that he was diligent in his pursuit he had set his heart on this pursuit to find meaning and satisfaction and purpose in life and he has gone down so many roads already and he is just making observations of life under the sun. In other words, his search is expansive and exhaustive and comprehensive. And he ended chapter 3 in the same way. He's, he's seeing the, the injustices in the world and he continues on in chapter 4 to say, there is much oppression in the world and it's maddening to him. It, it creates this, this, this uh, reality of despair in his heart when he sees all the oppression that takes place in the world. I mean, his eyes are open, unlike us much of the time. I mean, if we're being honest, right, we, we kind of go through life with blinders on, and we're, we're consumed with, with, you know, our job, our work, our desires, our pursuits, our life to the point where we don't see the injustices and the oppression in the world around us. But that was not the case for the preacher. He sees what's going on. And by the way, this is not a, an attack against, you know, authority and, you know, positions of power and, and, and kind of leadership structures. That's not the issue here. The issue is not positions of power, but those who abuse their power. And this is happening all over the world. It's happening in our own country. UNICEF, the United Nations Children's Fund, reports that approximately 218 million children ages 5 to 17 work, with more than half, about 126 million, working in hazardous situations, maybe in mines with chemicals and pesticides and and dangerous machinery. It's not right. Love 146, a non-profit organization committed to combating human trafficking and slavery, they, they say that two children are sold into slavery every minute. I mean, just think about it. By the, by the time the sermon's over, roughly, you know, 70 children sold into slavery. And you think, yeah, that's, that's like in the world. It's not our problem. We could talk about that. But added to that, over 100,000 children in the United States every year are forced into some type of prostitution or pornography. The preacher sees this, and he responds in verses 2 and 3 with a really drastic response. Look what he says. He says, And I thought the dead who were already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. In other words, in light of how fallen and evil our world could be, his conclusion is, man, it's, 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 when, you're, when you're faced with that reality, it's almost as if we're, we're better off not even being here not even being born than to see all the atrocities and the evil and the oppression and the injustice in our world. And I want us to think about Jesus here. Man, I love Jesus. Isaiah 53 says that Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. What is, that? what is that saying? It's saying that Jesus, who was perfect and perfectly innocent, had eyes that could see all the injustice and all the fallenness of our world, and it troubled him. He wept over the injustice that he saw in the world. He was even willing to die for it. So just to kind of you know, get in each other's business here? I mean, is that you, like, at all? Does the injustice, the oppression around you, does it bother you like it bothered Jesus? I mean, do you ever shed a tear over all of the oppression in the world? I'll admit, I'm not like Jesus as much as I need to be and want to be and ought to be in this area. But here's some hope, okay? This is is how the Christian worldview can speak to these issues in a way like no other religion or worldview. You see, we understand that we are made in God's image. So we not only have a capacity for relationality, we have a view of people, no matter what their background, what color their skin, that says all people are made in the image of God, therefore they necessarily have worth and dignity. And we're to treat all people as such. So the preacher unpacks this first enemy of oppression. It may be the most drastic, even if it's not the most pervasive. Verse four hits one of the ones that are the most pervasive. He says this, then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. Here's the second enemy of of community and that's envy. We'll look again at verse four. What does he say? He says, I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. Now, uh, to, to, to kind of put some handles here, the, the, the preacher is speaking hyperbolically, okay? This is a general kind of principle that we see that much of our work, okay, maybe not all, much of our work is motivated out of wanting to stay ahead, get ahead of our neighbor. He says that, this, this, per, this, this, this person is, is operating uh, not just out of a sense of jealousy, but, but even out of a spirit of competition. There is a desire to outdo the other person. So if your neighbor gets a boat, man, you want a yacht. If, you, if, if your roommate gets a new pair of boots, man, it's time for you to get a newer, nicer pair. If your, you know, co got the promotion, man, now I'm going to work, you know, not 40, but 50, 60, 70 hours a week, do everything that I can do so I can earn that six-figure salary just like, you know, he or she did. And so the preacher says, look, we're motivated out of our, of our envy. We, we want to appear or we want to have more than our neighbor. We want to keep up with the Joneses, right? Or if you prefer, the Kardashians, may, maybe. So the preacher's saying, look, it's, 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 it's not wise to operate out of envy. It, it, it reflects here the, the statement that someone once said. We, we buy things we don't need with money we don't have to please people we don't even care about have you ever done that so what's the the corrective here if if envy and rivalry undermine our love for our neighbor then then what's a corrective to that well he gives us a couple proverbs in verses five and six Look at what he says. He says in verse 5, The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. So to sum this up, you have another extreme to avoid, laziness. Which as we step back and think about it, it's also a barrier to community, right? I mean, when we just kind of chill out on the couch, You know, constantly wanting to take another nap and another nap and sleep our day away and, and, you know, not get involved with other people. That can be a barrier to community as well. So he's saying, you know, there's there's value in work. Don't just be lazy. And then at the same time, don't work to the point of exhaustion where you're not enjoying life. You're not finding rest and peace in life. That's that's the idea of verse 6. Don't be a slave to your work. Better is a handful of quietness, one handful, than two handfuls uh, full of toil and striving. So he's saying, be content with what you have. Be content with less in life. And that'll help free you from this, this enemy of envy. The last enemy that he is going to expose for us is found in verses seven and eight. And that is the enemy of selfish ambition. So check verse 7 with me. He says, Again, I saw a vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches. So that he never asked, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. So here, again, we have another picture of the workaholic, right? I mean, the 40-hour week is just the tip of the iceberg for this person. They're going to work and work and work and work until their work owns them and just drives them into the ground. And such a depressing statement at the beginning of verse 8. It says this person has no other. The NIV says they're all alone. They have no one to share life with, no one to enjoy life with. No son, no wife, no business partner, no friend. It's all work for selfish ambition. I mean, think about if we were to interview this person. If we were to come and just, you know, sit down, put a microphone up to his mouth, say, you know, who do you work for? I work for me. What, 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 what are you, you know, striving for to, 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 to earn this, you know, all these, this money and, and have all the success? What's, what's the motivation there? Me. What, 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 do, what do you, you know, want to, want to do with all of this? Who's going to be proud of your accomplishments? Me. Me, me, me. And this is what he has. This is the result of, of all of his labor. And we might think, well, hey, you know, like at least this person's loaded, right? I mean, like at least, at least he's making bank and he's, he's got it and he, and, and he can't even enjoy it. The, pre- the preacher says, look, that, that you think that would bring happiness? It, it's It's vanity. It's actually going to kill joy in your life if that's what you're making your life after. And so selfish ambition never brings true joy. It's an enemy of community, just like envy and oppression. And then skip, skip down to verses 13 through 16 because there's, there's this description of a, of, a, of, a, of a couple kings and I think we see some of these same ideas in these verses. Look, look what it says. It says, Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. There you go. He didn't want to live in community. He didn't want to listen to others. For for he went from his prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been poor. I saw all the living that move about, about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after the wind. So we see that even the community there is not going to be satisfied with him. They're going to be wanting more and more and more and more. And in this description, we find the picture of what he's already shared with us in these first eight verses. And so look for these enemies in your life. We know that selfish ambition and envy creep into our hearts. Perhaps even to the point where we would consider, maybe even if it's a subtle, mild form of oppressing someone else so that we can get ahead in life. And the preacher's saying, look, all those are enemies to, to biblical community. It's not what God wants and, and intends for us. But then, uh, thankfully, we're gonna move to some positive instruction in verses nine through 12. And, and here's the encouragement here, to receive the blessings of living in biblical community. It's it's as if the preacher is saying here, look, you know, we've observed the foolishness of individualistic living, and so how about putting that on the back burner and pursuing the wisdom that's found in community? And we find the key principle here in in the first really five words of verse nine. Look at what he says, two are better than one. There you go. Two are better than one, and he's going to unpack that as we go. And so we're going to see some advantages, some blessings that come from meaningful relationships here in 9 through 12. Let's check it out together. He says, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him, a three-four cord is not quickly broken. And so to, to summarize these verses here, we find that community promotes success. He says two are better than one because they have a good return for their toil. In other words, we can get more done when we work together. We can have more success when we work together. I mean, college students, like I was able to make it through college primarily in part, at least, because of study groups, all right? So, you know, you guys are probably like, Ace in all your classes, don't need anybody to help you along, but that wasn't me. And that's just kind of one example, kind of small example, of how two are better than one. Five were even better, especially if they were all smart and paid attention in class and took good notes. Um, so, so, community promotes success in life. Community also provides support and security in times of need. This is what he says in, in verse 10 and 11. I mean, you're going to, let me mean just not, I'm not asking you if you're going to. Like if you've fallen down in life, I'm just telling you, you are going to fall down in life, and it's a, it's a sad, sad moment when you're there on your back and you have no one to help you up. We need each other. It also provides uh, sec- security here. Uh, we have actually this is, you know, ancient. Israel, and we have a picture of two travelers, perhaps in the winter months when, you know, it's very cold outside. And so it gives a picture to say, look, when, when, it, when, it's, when it's cold and the nights are cold and, and, and it's time to go to bed, it, it's, it's better when you can lie down next to, to someone to keep you warm. I mean, I experienced this just a few weeks ago. Marsha was in Georgia, and it was kind of like, I know this hasn't been a bad winter, all right, but it was like, you know, in the teens, in our houses, older, and really cold, and so I was also kind of trying to save, you know, some some cash, and so I, you know, set the the temp on about 62, all right, so like I could kind of manage downstairs, but when I went to bed at night, I literally had like five blankets on me, and then it was so much better when Marsha got back, right, for a variety of reasons, but two are better than one, and you know, when you lie down together, you can keep each other, Warm. and so the community provides success, it provides support and security, but then it also provides strength, particularly strength under trial, look again at, at verse 12, he says, and though one man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him, a threefold cord is not quickly broken, and so you say, well, Tanner, what is all this about, you know, success and support and security and strength, like, what does that have to do with us? Well, here's, like just, here's the takeaway today. You take away nothing else, so here's the takeaway. We need each other. We need each other. We need one another. The, the early church got this. Acts 2.44 simply says, all who believed were together. They were all together. They spent their time together. They met together. They worshiped together. They prayed together. They got in the word together. They shared their life together. We need one another. This is how this works. And this is the beautiful thing about the gospel. All right, and just think Ephesians 2 here. We're not going to go there for the sake of time, but, but I want you to really become familiar with Ephesians 2. All right? Because what Ephesians 2 is going to teach us is that the gospel is a gospel, the good news of God's grace. God's grace radically changes our life to the point where in verses 1 through 3 says, look, you were dead in your sin. It's just the way it is. You were bent toward evil. You weren't bent toward loving God, and so you had lived your own way, selfishly following Satan's ways, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Verse four, but God made us alive because he is rich in mercy. He is ready to pour out his love and grace on us so that, verse eight, it is by grace that we have been saved through faith. This is not of ourself. It's a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast before him. So, so, so the first 10 verses in Ephesians 2, they teach us that the gospel now brings us back into a right relationship with God because of God's grace and us looking to Christ and his atoning sacrifice on the cross that is the, the, the mediating point by which we can be brought back to God. But chapter 2 doesn't end there. Because in 11 through 22, he is going to say, look, the gospel not only changes your relationship with God, but the gospel changes your relationship with one another. Jews and Gentiles did not mix very well back in the first century. They called each other names and, you know, they didn't didn't get along. And so what, what Paul says is he says, look, the gospel now makes one man out of the two. What's the most important thing about you, Tanner? The most important thing about me is Jesus. Not where I'm from. Not my background. Not the color of my skin. My ethnicity. Not how much comes in on the paycheck every other week. That's not what is most important about me. It's Jesus. That's the gospel. And the gospel takes two radically different people and brings them together because now Jesus is the most important thing about those two people. The gospel creates a new community and we're able to relate to one another and love one another and fulfill God's will for our lives together, committed to God and to one another. This is what the writer of Hebrews is talking about in chapter 10, 24, and 25. He says, And let us consider how to stir one another up toward love and good works, not neglecting, this is important too, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of song. Okay, it was happening in Paul, um, the writer of Hebrews, day two, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so, so, so we know this is just how it works, okay? We just, this is just how it works. I know this, you know this, everyone knows this. Some people will say, you know what? I'm cool. I'm good. I don't, I don't need the church. Like, I don't need, and wh- when we say that, we're not talking about like institutions and buildings and bricks. I mean, it's a proper understanding of the church is not all that stuff. It's people. That's, we're the church, okay? Maybe that's part of the problem, why people say this people say, you know what? I'm good. I'm cool. mean, I can make it on my own. I don't need other people to know, like, read my Bible and, and stay connected to God. And maybe you've thought that. Maybe you've said that. Maybe you hear others saying that. Well, let me offer a few encouragements. Here, here's four encouragements to consider if that's kind of your mindset or if you, if you interact with people who have that mindset. Uh, number one, God made us for community. We've already t- touched on that. He got has set eternity in our hearts. He's made us not only for himself, but he's made us for one another. And so he wants us to relate to one another really, really well. He's given us that capacity and that need. We were made for this. Number two, living in community promotes humility. So I know it's, it's, it's you know, kind of difficult for us to say, hey, I don't have it all together. I would be better if I, you know, learned from that person and gained their wisdom and saw their example in life. But community is good for us. It promotes humility. I mean, I changed my notes. I used to, when I kind of like preached on this before, I would just call people ignorant and arrogant and let them have it. And I'm trying to be, you know, a nicer guy these days. Okay? So maybe God's working in my life. Promotes (laughs) humility. Uh, Number three community provides the context for us to live out the commands of Jesus. All right. So think about this: How can you live out the commands to love one another? John thirteen thirty four. Bear one another's burdens. Galatians six two. Be kind to one another. Forgive one another. Ephesians four thirty two. Teach and admonish one another. Colossians three sixteen. Encourage the faint heart. Help the weak. 1 Thessalonians five. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. James five sixteen. And the list could just keep going on and on and on and on. How are you going to do that by yourself? You know, like good luck with that, you know? Good luck. So community provides the context for us to live out the life that God wants us to live together to help one another along in this journey. And then number four, I would just say this, love what Jesus loves. Like if if you're okay with Jesus and you're loving Jesus and you're following Jesus, then just think about Ephesians 5, a couple more chapters along, where it says Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Christ died for his people how would we not turn around and love those same people just like he's called us to like he loves us and so let me ask you have you have you benefited from the community of faith i mean i have i need your prayers i need your counsel and encouragement I need you to celebrate the joys in my life and to help me through the difficult times and the times of trial in my life. We need one another. And these these, qualities and characteristics and benefits can be experienced on Sunday mornings and and, and it's happening and that's good. We praise God for that. But, but just to make kind of a specific application to life at Redemption Hill, I want you to think about uh, how this really, we really wanna get at this value of community in what we call our community groups, all right? Not a, not a very you know, novel name, but it gets at what we're after. So, so our community groups, what are they? We, we say that a community group is a family of missionary servants who are committed to making disciples who make disciples, all right? In other words, we're a family that's getting together in a smaller group, roughly eight to 16 people through the week, To encourage one another, hang out, do life together, apply God's word, pray, and just go about life together because we understand we need one another. All right, so we have five different groups meeting right now. As we have more and more people get involved, we will add more and more groups. It's as simple as that. But, but, but what is the, what is the importance of, of community groups at Redemption Hill? I mean, it is, it is deep, all right? I mean, check this out. Community is where, uh, community groups are where we live in com- biblical community with one another. What we just described, it's where it's gonna primarily happen. Number two, it's, it's where we're gonna grow in grace. In other words, man, the tanner that I am today, I don't wanna be like, you know, three or four or five years from now. And so who's gonna help me do that? The Spirit of God is gonna transform me, but the Spirit of God uses you in my life as you have strengths, and, 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 and I see that, and I see the example that you set, and you're praying for me, and you're encouraging me, and you're telling me, and reminding me of God's word that changes us, and so that's number two. Number three is where we care for one another. It's really the strategy that, that John and I have in place to really keep up with people, and care for people, and love them. Uh, number four, it cultivates a missional lifestyle. Five, in, it helps us invest relationally in one another. Six is where we're going to develop future leaders for our church. Seven is where we serve our community together. Our community groups are going to roughly four to six times a year engage in a service project together as a community group, and it's the place where we care for our missionaries. Every community group has a missionary that they're praying for consistently, and we do that through our community groups, and so I just share that because sometimes you, you can't see that. You don't know that, Um, unless you've been at one even a while. Some of you might have popped in, but you don't understand how significant these are for us. So, you know, that's the ideal, okay? That's the ideal. This is what we're after. And by God's grace, this is where we'll be. But let me also say, this takes work, right? It takes a commitment. It takes work. It takes some sacrifice. I love what Jonathan Dodson says. This is a a little bit of a long quote, but I want you to hear it. He says this, community is what you make of it community isn't an idea it's real people awkward struggling weird no one laughed okay you must not be in a community then Uh, different funny slow arrogant sheepish humble curious skeptical excitable you get the idea Jesus didn't die to make clicks. He died and rose to form diverse communities. Diverse and different is hard. It requires love, effort, and patience. Community doesn't just magically appear in a church. In fact, churches don't have community at all. They are community. The question is, what will you make of the community? I'm falling in love with messy, real community, with people who are so different from me and yet so alike Jesus in jesus there's nothing like pursuing difficult people being loved by different people and serving alongside a diverse people what a display of grace and nothing else could hold us together and so hey let me say this is happening like this is happening at redemption hill i mean i could tell you about how how people are are serving one another and praying for one another we had a, a couple this week whose grandfather died. They blasted out an email. Hey, we may be leaving for, for almost a week, and we need someone to, to really sacrifice some time. I may be leaving. My spouse will be here, but he works. So we need someone to help keep our kid for multiple hours, multiple days. We had three people within an hour email back, roughly, to say, hey, we'll help out. What do you need us to do? That's community. We have people that are, you know, giving each other rides and, and taking care of kids and, and, you know, praying for one another and walking through trials together, knowing what's going on in each other's lives. I mean, it's a beautiful thing. So this is happening, but we want it to happen more and more and more and more and more. And So as we think about where we are as a church, when we think about the fact that ministry is better and it's more fruitful and effective when we work together, I want to encourage you to consider where you are in this pursuit of community. How is it that God might want to work in your life to bring you to that spot where you're you're more involved, more engaged, experiencing more of the blessings that come from living in community together. God made us for community. So I want to encourage you, you know, not to say, hey, yeah, that's nice, and one day I will get involved with that, right? Or, or yeah, I'm like, I'm, I'm seeing that, I'm buying that, it's like right there, but, you know, I'm just so busy, man, I'm so busy. You don't understand. I, I do understand. I'm Pretty busy. You could find time. If you can't find time, let's get together for coffee, and I'll help you find the time, all right? Just out of love, I'll help you find it. 30 minutes, an hour, two hours. I mean, I mean, if you just can kind of find like 30 minutes or an hour, or two hours, you could be almost involved in everything that's happening at Redemption Hill. It's, honest, it's the honest truth. You say, why is that? It's because we have a ministry philosophy that's kind of like Ikea furniture. All right, you know what I'm saying? Like they just like put those boxes and just kind of like, you know, like dummies can put those things together. I can put those things together. All right? Damon knows I can't swing a hammer or like know the difference between a Phillips and a flathead. But, you know, somehow I can put IKEA furniture together. So, so, so we're after, you know, what's simple? We try to make it very simple here at Redemption Hill. A few things that are really important. Say, so you man, know, we want to worship together on Sundays. We want to be involved in a community group. We want to serve in some capacity. It's not a huge commitment of time of your week. It's really not. And so would you pray about taking a next step? A next step to get more involved in the life of the church. I mean, we have community groups. We have serve teams on Sunday mornings that, that still, I mean, yeah, they're great, but, but they need more help. We just need more help. Like 10 are better than five to modify verse nine there. All right, 15 are better than four. Get it? Serve teams, community groups, membership in the church. I mean, there's so many opportunities to just take a step and go deeper. And so what I want you to do is, is I want you to take out the connection card okay? And on the back, there are options here, okay? Options where you can say, you know what, I'm new to Redemption Hill, or maybe you can like cross that out and say, man, I'm old to Redemption Hill, <laughs> but I'm interested in, in getting more involved. Circle, circle one of these church membership serve teams I'm interested in getting involved in one of the the, the community groups. Listen, this is not Tanner and John and leadership, like kind of like saying, oh man, Ecclesiastes 4, got to take advantage. It's about community. We're going to hammer the church today. We're going to make people feel guilty for, you know, like being here for multiple months and, you know, only coming on. That's not the point. That is not the point. That's not what Jesus does in the gospel. It's not what we're about as a church. In fact, check this out the foundation for community. Ephesians 2, the gospel that brings these people, diverse people together, it's the motivation to live in community day by day by day. It's the gospel. Tanner's not trying to, to, to motivate you. Tanner's not trying to guilt you into anything. Just look at the gospel. What does 1 John 4, 19 says? It says, we love. Does anyone know the rest? We love, why? Because he first loved us. That's the motivation, man. I want to love Mark because Jesus has changed my life. He's given me a love for him and a love for others. And so, man, however I can get it in with Mark, however I can spend time and, you know, follow up with Hoogs or whatever that guy's name is, is in my community group, man, I want to text that guy. I want to be up in his life. Man, he knows what's going on with me. My community group, who knew that Thursday night my... My mom, that's what I call her. That's my grandmother. Who knew that she was in, had to be taken to the hospital? She might have been having heart trouble. Who knew that? My community group. They were there. They were praying for her. She's okay. Thank you, Lord. She's fine. I mean, who knows the joys and the struggles and, and what's happening in life? It's, 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 sometimes it's this group, and that's great, but, but most of the time it's going to be that smaller group of people that are really invested in one another's life. And so let's let love, love for God, love for one another, that's produced from the gospel. Let that motivate us to take a next step, whatever it is. Maybe you need to take multiple steps, you know, not just like one, but go ahead and, you know, take two or three or four and we'll help you get there. All right? Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for your word. God, let us, let us be wise. God, let us resist and reject these enemies of biblical community and let us see the value of living life together. Lord, may even that simple truth, two are better than one, a threefold cord is not quickly broken, may, may that really ring true in our hearts to the point where we would change our life, make adjustments on our calendar to, to really be in with one another like you're in with us through Christ. Help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.